deeper. Last week we did a roundtable. Hope you enjoyed the roundtable. I know many, many did. Uh, had a lot of conversations after the service. Uh, uh, predominantly women coming to me in tears. Uh, saying, I've been in church all my life. Uh, no one's ever given us a voice before. Praise God. And uh, women coming to me saying, I know how God's gifted me. I've taken spiritual gifts tests all my life. No one's ever actually told me I could use them in the church. I had uh, young, one of our teenage uh, young ladies, her parents come to me and say, our daughter's been telling us for years something that God's laying on her heart. We come from a very traditional Southern Baptist family. Family members have always been saying to her, well, you need to get you a good husband so that you can do that, which is the typical answer. And for the first time with tears of joy, being able to express that God could use her in his will and with his gifting, uh, whether or not she ever marries. You don't have to marry to be in God's will. There's whole sections of scripture about this where Paul says, I'm single. We have no indication he had ever been married. Uh, we have no indication that Timothy is married or Titus is married, as well as many other people uh, in the Bible. And they were wonderful, wonderful servants of God, mightily, mightily used. And uh, the roundtable, obviously, too much information, couldn't get it delivered in the time slot we have. We didn't get to all of your questions, and I'll do my very best to weave the questions that went unanswered back into this next five weeks of sermons so that your question will pop up here then in one of the sermons that's coming. It's fun when we do a roundtable because it's a little more interactive and, and we can see your faces and you can see ours and we can have a, a little bit of exchange even if it's through an electronic medium, your question's coming to us. I did see several people searching wildly on their phones. You know what I mean? Searching for scriptures. And, uh, uh, you know, where questions come in. Well, what about 1 Timothy chapter number 2? Uh, yeah, I know, I know where those verses are. I've been doing this a long time. And 1 Timothy 3, and 1 Corinthians 11, and Ephesians 4, and 1 Corinthians 14 need to be dealt with as well. I know where they're at. And in the next five weeks, I'll deal with all of them. Okay? So just be patient. Nobody will avoid any uh, of the text. But we will not deal with them as proof texts. Now, several weeks ago, I had a conversation with our con congregation, and I said, when you're posting scripture on Facebook, don't post it with, like it's a baseball bat. Don't post it with an agenda. If you want to post scripture on the internet, post it saying, hey, this is what I was studying this morning. This is what God said to me, and here's what I need to do based on what I, this is how this verse is affecting me. Don't grab a verse, rip it out of its context, throw it out there on the internet, because what we all think is you've got an agenda. Isn't that what we all think when we see that? Just go ahead and be honest. We all think you have an agenda, and that you're either fighting with your wife, you're fighting with someone, and you're, you're trying to settle the score publicly. That, this is like the opposite of godliness, okay, to try to do that. Uh, resting the scriptures in, in a way that's not proper. And we call this kind of philosophy, especially among Baptists, proof, proof texting. In other words, I can find one verse that says something in the Bible. I can rip it completely out of its context and hit you with it 
uh, to, to get you to agree with me. I'm not sure, I'm not sure we're ever all going to agree on a lot of things. But I think we need to have an open exchange of ideas and opinions and let the Holy Spirit guide us to what we can believe. I'm going to take you back to the Roman series. One person believes they can eat meat. One person believes they can't. What are we supposed to do? The person who says, I can, believes unto the Lord they can. The person who says, I can't, believes unto the Lord I shouldn't. They're both trying to serve God. What's our response supposed to be to each other? Learn how to live together in the body of Christ. Remember that? We just came through this series. Some people believe you can drink wine. Some people believe you shouldn't drink wine. The ones who drink it, drink it as unto the Lord as a gift from God. The ones who don't drink it, don't drink it because they think they shouldn't drink it as unto God. Does that make sense? How are we going to get along with each other? Paul said, just give way. Just give way. Know what you believe. And if, and if you doubt, then don't. <laughs> but, but don't make everybody conform to your, your view. Does that make sense? Learn to get along in the body of Christ. And that's kind of the backdrop. Paul spent a whole lot of time, once he got really the plan of salvation nailed down, chapter 14, 15, 16, the end of the book of Romans is all about how we get along with the, how I see myself, self-image, how I deal with the body of Christ, how I deal with saved people, how I deal with people who are unsaved. And that's kind of a synopsis of the end of the book of Romans. So we're not going to proof text. In other words, if I wanted to tell you which Christians have done for generations, something like the Bible says in Romans 13, owe no man anything. Therefore, no Christians are allowed to have credit cards. You shouldn't have a home mortgage. You shouldn't have debt. Has anybody heard something like that? The only problem is that's not what that verse means. The passage says... Give honor to whom honor is due, respect to whom respect is due, owe no man anything. has absolutely nothing to do with finances whatsoever. Proof texting rips it out of its context and overlays it in a way that it was not meant to be overlaid. Does that make sense? So when we deal with the verse, we're going to have to deal with it in context and in the context of Scripture. We can't just rip it out. The series builds, stay with me for five weeks. We want to talk about why we at Cornerstone should be in the business of doing our best to reverse the curse. This is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Our concept of life, our concept of living should not match the world's concept of living. They're living in one way. We're living with a whole different set of rules because we are in the kingdom of God even though our neighbor may not be in the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? And we who live in the kingdom, who are born again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the words of Jesus are very instructive on how we're to live in the kingdom of God. We live by different rules. We do unto others as we would have them. That's kingdom living. Now, the world may never abide by that. (laughs) And we wouldn't expect them to. They're not in the kingdom of God. We hope they will be. But we who are in the kingdom live a different way. Uh, sometimes when we get to things that are controversial, people ask me, Pastor, why would you even bring a series like this? Let me see if I can be very clear on what, how important I think this is. Christianity in America is not debating the gospel right now. Christianity in America, in theological circles, in religious circles, we're not debating God's redemptive plan. No one's disputing salvation by faith. We're not, we're not really debating any, any kind of theological things that they've debated in the past millennia or, or even the past decades. 
the issue that keeps rising to the forefront of Christianity in our culture is how our churches are going to respond to the female majority in every congregation in America who is wondering how they fit into the ministries of their church. It, and if you think I'm joking, today's headlines, that's Monday morning this past week. I get one of these every week from somewhere. Last Monday, after the Sunday roundtable, this was the next day's headline in Christian circles right here. And it's a discussion about exactly what we're talking about. Christian women want to know what exactly is my standing in the body of Christ. Now add to that, that's what's happening in religious circles. Now add to that what's happening culturally right now in America. Combine this with the Me Too movement that really, with the election season of Donald Trump, really came into full media attention, nationwide rallies. And, and the Me Too movement, movement began to affect all aspects of American culture. Corporate America is no longer the same after the Me Too movement. You hire with a different mentality right now. Just I'll let you figure out what all that means. But you hire differently now. You document differently now. It affected academia. It affected churches. It affected every aspect of American culture. And as this was unfolding before our eyes, I challenged you uh, more than a year ago. Please give careful attention to this Me Too movement and listen to what's happening and listen to the voices because I believed it would be a watershed moment in American culture. In other words, nothing will ever be the same again. There's no going back. Listen, for hundreds of years, we dealt with women's accusations of sexual misconduct in a certain way. But after the Me Too movement, you deal with them in a different way. Does that make sense, what I'm saying to you? I, I want to be sure I can communicate this. Before this voice uh, that happened a year or two ago, you, you dealt with things one way, but now after this, you begin to deal with it in a different way. It's a watershed. It's a defining moment that tweaked forever American culture. The issues of women's roles, uh, uh, the issue of abuse, uh, was escalated yet again because of the failure and some corruption at the highest levels of religious circles. Now, we all know about the Catholic misconduct and sexual abuse. Everyone of any maturity understands what happened with the Catholic Church in America, and maybe worldwide, but we know what's happened in America with sexual abuse. But nobody was talking about the evangelical circles. And just a few months ago, I don't know if you were paying attention, in February of this year, just a few months ago, it was the Houston Chronicle that rocked the Baptist world with a six-part expose. Did anybody see this in the news at all? Houston Chronicle broke this story. They did a six-part expose on how the boys' club of Baptist leaders, both independent and southern Baptist, were covering up sexual abuse 
within their institutions that they were leading. Right here in Fort Worth, the president of Southwestern Theological Seminary came under accusation very quickly, and very swiftly he was removed from office. And right here in your city, churches right here in your neighborhood were revealed in this expose about what's going on with sexual abuse and how it's not being reported and how people are dealing with it. This summer, and when I say this summer, you understand it's August? So when I say this summer, I mean like five or six weeks ago, Beth Moore. Does anybody know who Beth Moore is? Beth Moore, once again, not the first time, once again locked horns with the highest leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention at their national meeting over the subject of women's roles in the body of Christ. That's just weeks old, this whole thing. And, and what I'm saying to you is this debate, this discussion is not going away. So the church has to understand where you are on this issue. And it's something that needs a few weeks of understanding. It needs a, so, some explanation. It may require you to do some outside reading because the issue is not going away. And from my point of view, it shouldn't go away. Needs to be talked about, needs to be dealt with, and then we need to move on. Okay? Needs to be talked about, we need to understand where we are with it, we need to form some opinions about it, figure out how we can agree to move forward, and then we go forward. Now, when I say that, what I mean is every believer needs to search the scriptures. Every believer needs to pray. Every, every believer needs to study the substantial Maybe years ago there wasn't any material about this, but right now there is substantial uh, a body of scholarship out there that you can, you can access, and if you don't know where to start, I, I, I can give you a reading list. Maybe I should publish that next couple of weeks where you can start reading and you can understand what the issues are, and it might be a way to begin dialogue about, uh, about what God's revealing. Let, let me start with where I am personally. Uh, it's no secret around here that uh, I come from a church tradition that was uh, male-dominated. My father was a pastor. I grew up in church. Okay, I come from a tradition male-dominated. That's not even the right term. Give me a second. Was exclusively male-led. I need to be more severe in my language. Male-dominated. Women didn't have a prayer of leading. It was totally male-dominated. That's the tradition in which I grew up in. And so I want you to know my bias immediately I have a lenses I have baggage as I say that I have to process and when you begin to have a discussion with me about women's roles in church and, and, and you think I'm just this left-wing feminist once you know that's the opposite of the way I came up I'm just trying to be honest about where my baggage lies and when I something rises up in me and say yeah but I remember my dad saying I remember my grandpa saying, I remember my old-time pastor saying, well, what I'm trying to wrestle with is what did Jesus say? And what does the Holy Spirit want? And I don't want to judge my reaction by baggage I might be carrying. Every attempt to deal with a tough subject around here is an attempt to figure out what the Scripture says, not an attempt to be cool, cutting edge, or hip. It's an attempt to know in a culture that's changing what is the right position. And, and let's be honest about that, that, that search. Because I have baggage in this area, 
I would doubt seriously if there's any other area of theology or ecclesiology that I have studied uh, as intensely as this subject. Let, let me say it in the reverse way. As a result of my baggage, I wanted to know whether my baggage is my baggage or my baggage is thus saith the Lord. And so I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours researching, studying, reading, praying for illumination, uh, digging through the Bible from cover to cover, reading every book I could find, hunting down every website. I mean, you can't imagine how I've researched. And because of that, I've come to my own, listen carefully, informed opinions. Now, whatever opinions I've drawn, I want you to know they're not uninformed. Does that make sense? I've come to my own informed opinions about some of these issues. And some of them, one or two of them, which we can talk about later, I'm still a little gray on. But I've come to my own opinions. They're informed opinions. Now, I would beg of you, before you form an opinion, make sure it's an informed opinion. You can't just say, well, I remember sitting in church and I remember my grandpa saying, now listen, grandpa is a wonderful godly man, but he's not Jesus. And we want to know what Jesus said and how, how it applied to the body of Christianity or Scripture for hundreds or thousands of years, not just a snapshot of country Texas at one point, one point in time. And this attention to this subject has given us all over America now, pastors all over America, an opportunity either to ignore it, not talk about it, avoid it at all costs, or just go ahead and talk about it and let's talk about sexual abuse and let's talk about physical abuse, which they come, these two subjects just all come hand in hand. And, and then let's also talk about women's roles in the body of the church. All of them are interconnected. And I would challenge you, you may have strong opinions may have very strong opinions that women have no role leading in a church. You may have very strong opinions about that. And all I would ask you is over the next five weeks, that as you hear other voices speaking about this, that you not be dismissive of those voices. The issue is not going away. So you need to know what you believe, and you need to know what God is teaching us about these roles. I, I really think in my heart, because we're the, the body of Christ really de debating a lot of big issues, theological issues like they have in past generations, I think we've lost our mission, which is why we're champions of discipleship with every church we can coach. And I think we've lost our way on this issue. And I think these two issues between discipleship and allowing our women to serve in their proper roles in the church, I think these are two of the biggest issues maybe that you're going to deal with in your church life during your generation. Let's get right to it. Jesus told us that marriage is broken. Now, as we open the New Testament, Jesus told us marriage is broken. I'm going to have you turn with me to Matthew chapter number 19 and let me read. The Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him, Matthew 19, 3, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're asking the question because in the Jewish culture of the first century, you could divorce your wife for any cause. The woman had no say-so in this matter. The man was completely in control. 
He could get rid of the wife just because he wanted to get rid of the wife. It was not a big deal. Just, I find some uncleanness in her is all he had to say. And they would be granted a bill of divorcement and they were done. It's that easy. A man could have multiple wives. It was totally within the culture to do that. Many of the men had mistresses. Uh, and uh, the, many were engaged in extracurricular activities. There was one set of rules for the boys and one set of rules for the girls. That's what I want you to know. And so the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, is it lawful, the practice that we have here, for a man to put away his wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? Now I want you to pause right here. Because everything we're going to talk about in the next five weeks has its roots in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And if you don't get Genesis 1, 2, and 3 right, the, 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 the argument's going to come back to Genesis every time. So I'm just warning you right now. You want me to explain 1 Timothy 2 and 3? You can't even explain it until you've get, gone to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So let me go to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 this morning because this is what Jesus did. He said, marriage is broken. Let me swing you all the way back to Genesis. Listen to what Jesus said. Have you not read that he who created from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they too shall become what? They're just one. They're just one in the eyes of God. There is no hierarchy. They're just one in the eyes of God. There is no domination. There is no rule. There is no subjugation. He who made them in the beginning made them one. And he considered them one. Matter of fact, Genesis 5, he called them by one name. He called their name Adam. Genesis chapter 5. Now, Jesus is looping the conversation back to creation. So they are no longer two flesh, verse 6, but one. What therefore God has joined together. How many times have I said this in a wedding ceremony? Therefore what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Old KJV, you know, you're not allowed to tear it apart now because God has made these two one. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Verse 8, Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the, say it out loud, in the original model, this was not so. Jesus has taken them back to what marriage should be, not what it is right now, because what it is right now is broken. Does that make sense? Your marriage, don't be mad at me, our marriage is broken. Let me just prove it. You ever fight with your wife? Don't, don't answer out loud. Well, I know you do. Okay, so it's broken. Okay, it's broken. It was not that way in the beginning. I'm not saying marriage is bad. Marriage is awesome. And we should be restoring kingdom models in our marriage so it looks like the beginning marriage. And I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. But now something else has popped up in the scripture. Let me go ahead and answer it before you text me this week. So, pastor, does the Bible allow for divorce? Clearly, yes. The scripture speaks about divorce frequently. These Pharisees say to Jesus, why did Moses allow us to do divorce then? Have divorce, write bills of divorcement. Jesus said, yes, because of sin. Because we don't always do the right thing. We can't always reconcile it. We can't always be what we want. And, and sin has broken marriage. So Moses had to allow for a bill of divorcement. Now, 
before you dismiss that now, it's Deuteronomy 22 and 24. Talk all about the bill of divorcement in the Old Testament, how it was allowed under the law. Jesus, or let's use the word God, God went as far in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8, talking to Israel, his wife. Jeremiah 3, 8, let me read the words of the prophet. She saw that for all her adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. God actually uses this language in the Old Testament and says, I've divorced Judah. I've divorced Israel. I've broken, we've cut the relationship. Why? Because she went whoring after other gods. She was unfaithful to me. Next year we're going to teach through the book of Hosea. be very revealing uh, about this whole relationship between Israel and God likened to the husband-wife model. So, so hear what I'm saying. Don't, don't mishear me now. I'm not saying that divorce is our model. Amen? I'm not saying divorce is awesome. It's not awesome. It's horrible. I'm not saying divorce is good for your kids. It's not. I'm not saying divorce is the, oh, okay, it didn't work. Just trade them in, get another one, you know what I'm saying, uh, easy. I'm not at all condoning that. But I'm showing you that because of our sin and our broken relationships, God said, I designed one thing, but now you've got another thing. Jesus, can we, Jesus had stopped. Let's go back to the beginning. From the beginning, it was not so. God made one thing, they two shall be one flesh, leaf, but now you've got a whole other thing, and you've got another thing. He said, because of the hardness of your heart, because of sin, sin broke the model. Divorce was a not God's original design for marriage. I think we could all agree on that. That's common ground, right? He never intended for Adam and Eve to divorce, remarry. I mean, who are you going to remarry for the love of Pete? There's nobody. But the, you're saying, I mean, it was not God's model. It was not in God's mind that that would be, be, be our plan for marriage. But let's also be honest, it is our reality right now. At least 50% of the people in the room, if American stats hold true in this room, which I'm sure they do, at least 50% of us right now have been divorced and remarried. So it's our reality. It may not have been God's plan from the beginning, but it's the reality that we've lived or that we're currently living. You say, what do we do? Listen, it's really pretty simple to me. I, I think I just challenge you to, to ask God for forgiveness like you would for any other thing that you do wrong. Ask God for forgiveness and move forward and build a marriage that looks like the original one. I don't know if that's oversimplistic for me to say that to you, but ask for forgiveness and say, God, I acknowledge that the model, we broke it because of our sin and I perpetuated that in my own marriage. God, I'm going to try to do better. Forgive me of my sins. Help me not to do that. I'm going to go into my next marriage once for all for a lifetime. It's going to be my mindset. And God, I'm going to try to build a marriage that looks like the original model. Let me just say to you, we get really hung up on, the, on the, the marriage and the sexual stuff, but lying is not a part of God's design for us either. Bitterness is not part of God's design for us either. Stealing, envy, murder, none of those are God's design for us either. Pride, covetousness, none of those are God's design for us either, but they are also realities of our life. How do you deal with those sins? How do you deal with those sins? Well, you confess them, John chapter 1, verse number 5 you confess them and ask God to forgive you and he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and you try again. You start over in that forgiveness. We acknowledge our sins, we confess them, which means we agree with God what it is and we move forward. If you're divorced, 
or divorced and remarried, you're not a second-class Christian. Hear my voice. You're not a second-class member of this church. We will not deal with you in a different way than we deal with the other people who've only had one marriage or no marriage. No more than we would deal differently with people who harbor bitterness, jealousy, other sins. Just ask God for forgiveness and let's start over. God loves you. We love you. And our philosophy here at Cornerstone is not only... Listen, I remember when I was a kid. Here's my baggage. I remember the deacons asking people, now, have you been divorced? Okay, well, you can't sing here, and you can't stand there, and you can't serve here, and you can't do this. That was the old way in America. And it was wrong. We were wrong on that. And we pushed a whole generation of Americans away from God with our attitudes towards them that there was no way forward for them with God when there absolutely was. Our, our reaction was unscriptural toward them. And I want you to know very clearly that if you've been divorced or divorced and remarried, someone came the other day and said, I've been divorced and remarried three times. I said, lady, you're not even in the top ten around here. <laughs> Talk to me about five or six and we'll have a conversation, but you're not even close right now. So just go in peace, be forgiven, and serve wherever you are, Okay. And do better. Listen, after three or four or five, you begin to perfect it, I would think. And, and, and you know what I'm saying? I love you. And here's what I want to say. If you've been divorced, remarried, once, twice, or multiple, find forgiveness. Be discipled. Grow into spiritual maturity. Try to build a marriage, the one you have now, or your next one, on a model that looks like the first one. We have a place of service for you here at Cornerstone. As a matter of fact, we'll go one step further. We have a ministry for you to lead here at Cornerstone. We would love to give you a ministry of leading you and making your own disciples. And God can take the brokenness from your past and he can forgive you and heal you and actually use you to help other people move beyond their baggage as well. That's what we've seen. And so I want you to know you're in the right spot. If you came for forgiveness and acceptance and someone who will speak into your life. Now, be aware of this, though. Relational issues are far more complicated than any other issues. If you steal something, you can go give it back, make an apology, make amends. But when you break relational issues, you can't go back and undo stuff. They're usually, most usually, in the context in which I counsel and deal with, there are most usually children involved. You can't undo that. If somebody can figure that out, let me know. But you can't undo that now. We have kids together, and that's the normal situation. My kids, her kids, our kids. And now this marriage is failing. Listen, this is not easy. This is not simple. And it's going to have to be a lot of grace given. And you're going to have to figure, in relational issues, you have to, Ask for forgiveness and move forward from where you are. It's not like you can make restitution in other areas of life. Relationships are the very, very hardest. You have to deal with what you've got and just figure out how to move forward from where you are. So let's talk about the original model of marriage very quickly. Let's go to the beginning and let's see what God intended. Genesis 1, Genesis 1, first page of your Bible. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, speaking and 
as a trinity, as a plural, as God, one God expressed in three parts, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let us make man in our image. You'll not be surprised then that man is a trinity as well, body, soul, and a spirit made in the image of God. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. doesn't mean Adam. When you look this word up in the Hebrew, it means mankind. Not sexed male. It means mankind. God made humanity in his own image. Does that make sense? He made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God's being very clear about I made them. I made two of them. I made them with two gender distinctions. And I made them both in my image. And God blessed them, not just him. Her too. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God said to them, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you, the two of you, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. And you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was awesome. Now I'm standing right now in scriptural context to where it's all good. There's no sin. Man's got a, a perfect heart. Woman's got a perfect heart. The marriage is perfect. The relationship with God is perfect. And they live in paradise. This is the utopia right here. This is it. This is what man has always tried to get to and cannot get to on his own. We had it and lost it. So well did Milton title it, Paradise Lost. We had it and lost it because of sin. Now here's what you want to make note of. Mankind, human beings were made in the image of God. They were enjoying a close relationship with God. God's design for humanity was this. Two gender distinctions. I'm going to go real slow right here. God's design for mankind was two gender distinctions. Male and female. The man and the woman were both created in the image of God. The man and the woman shared the same profession, ruling, having dominion, being king and queen of the world, if you would. They had the same profession. They had the same position. They had the same authority. The first couple have a close relationship, companionship in their marriage. Whatever's being done, they're doing it together. That's all you can derive from these verses and the next two chapters. They have sexual freedom, which they are free to express within the boundaries of their marriage. And this marriage allows for the reproduction and for the procreation, if you would, of the human race. God calls this out. Be fruitful. Procreate. Enjoy what I've made. Populate this planet. This is why I've put you here their relationship was one, they were in equality, and over and over, 
Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. God calls them one. They are one. Jesus said, what is one? Don't try to make two. Two came together, not 50%. I'm going to give 50% marriage, and she's going to give 50%. And then together, we're 100, no, 100%, and 100% comes together. And two things that were different things now becomes one thing. That's what the Bible's teaching about marriage. The human beings were made to rule planet Earth. They were made to rule the animal kingdom. The food was free. Wouldn't that be nice? The food was plenteous to your fill. The food was healthy. Uh, it's like a, it just, there it is. You didn't have to work for it. Just go take it right off the vine or the tree or wherever. Life, as described by God himself, was very good. Now, I just want to wrap this little section up. This is what God wants for us. Life in Eden was God's design for you. This is what he wanted for you. This marriage, this authority, this freedom, this expression, this is what God wanted for you. They were happy, they were healthy, they were holy, they were spiritual, they were physical, they were sexual, they were beautiful, they were intellectual. So here's the question, what went wrong? What went wrong? Now we'll just have to turn a page and we'll find out what went wrong Genesis chapter 3, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. He's just messing with you. God knows that the day you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The, the temptation is not to be lesser or degenerate. The temptation was to rise higher, just so you know that, okay? Uh, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good to, for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Scripture is very clear in how it's worded. Adam is there with her. Then the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now God shows up, Now, just in my mind, just had a little picture of the kids smashing something, and now mom and dad walk into the room, you know, something's not right, where's everybody at, conspicuously hiding, you know, this is what it feels like to me. Now God shows up, and God begins to address the three different parties that were just mentioned. Stay with me. 14, God said to the serpent, first party because you've done this you're cursed above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life i will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel and there's some prophetic implications to that certainly now god addresses the uh, the, uh, the woman uh, i will surely verse 16 i will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and in pain shall you bring forth children your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you verse 17 to adam now because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which i've commanded you you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat all the days of your life Thorns and thistles will the ground bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, 
you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, here's where I have to challenge you. Now, my time's almost done, so you have to bear with me. Give me about 10 minutes now. You're going to have to ask yourself a question right now, a theological question. Maybe you've never been challenged to ask yourself before. Are these verses prescriptive or predictive? Now, I'm going to ask all of you to go home and read this section again in your devotion time this week. And I want you to answer this question. Is it prescriptive or is it predictive? Let me see if I can explain. Prescriptive answers the question, what does God require? What does God want us to do? Does he prescribe this? Prescriptive. Is this what God says? Now, here's what I, because you did this, now here's what I want you to do. Or is it predictive? Predictive answers the question, what is now going to happen as a result? Predictive says, okay, this is what happened, and now let me tell you. Here's what's going to happen, and then lays out what life looks like on the other side of Eden. Now, you'll be able to wrestle with that in your devotion time, but here's the conclusion I know you will all come to because you can't come, you're sane, intelligent people. No, no rational person could believe that verses 14 to 19 are prescriptive. No one could believe that. You'd be crazy. Well, I'll let you draw your own conclusion. It would be illogical. I'll say it another way, to come to that conclusion. For example, God said, by the sweat of your brow, you will bring forth your food. Does that mean if I don't sweat and I bring forth my food from Walleth Marteth, then, then, then I've somehow circumvented God's will for my life because I didn't sweat? You say, no, well, you worked all week to earn it. Okay, let me ask you a different thing. Some, at this point, people plow with people power. We know that somewhere they domesticated a horse and an oxen and they begin to plow with them. You understand what I'm saying? So when people found other ways to plow using horse power and oxen power and yoking oxen together for, for more plowing to make it easier and less hard, are I out of the will of God because I use... Let me give you, come at it another way. If I live in West Texas and I got, I've got this big air-conditioned cab tractor with Sirius satellite radio and I drop down those plows that are wide as this stage and I start going through the field because I'm trying to make it easier and more productive and my circumventing God's will for my life. Well, that's ridiculous. Okay, let's come at it another way. God said you ladies would have pain in childbirth. So if I'm saying prescriptive, the more pain the better. The more painful it is, the more you're fulfilling the will of God. This is what he requires. Tough it up. Come on. Uh, It's got to hurt. Make it hurt. Feel the burn. You know what I'm saying? I went to Lamont's classes so I could coach Susan. Nobody even told me that. Come on, baby. Suck it up. It's got to hurt. Make it hurt. You can do this. God expects you to hurt. Uh, That's an instant divorce right there. I'm just telling you. Uh. Because the logical question you're going to ask yourself is, so God's saying I must have pain in childbirth? Wait, an epidural now took me outside of God's plan for my life? What I'm saying is it's ridiculous. 
for you to believe that this is a list of things that God now wanted us to do. God's saying, no, I'm not asking you to, this is what I want you to do. I'm saying because now you broke, broke the model and now that sin's been introduced into the world, this is what's going to happen. Let me tell you, I can call it. I can tell you exactly what's going to happen as a result. As a matter of fact, to believe that these verses are prescriptive, you'd have to be Amish to deal with your own hypocrisy. Does that make sense? You'd have to go back and do everything the hard way in order to try to comply with Genesis 3 to match your theological view. God's not demanding that Adam rule over Eve. Because what's found in the text is your husband shall rule over you. God's not saying I require husbands to rule over their wives. Or for humanity, let's back up, outside of the marriage even. I require that all men shall rule over all women so that women everywhere must embrace their subjugation and pay penance for the next 6,000 years for Eve's sin. Wait, you guys don't believe that theologically, that we pay penance for sin over a period of time. That's not your theological stance. We just came through the book of Romans. You believe something completely different about the gospel. What I'm saying is that verses 14 to 19 are clearly predictive of what would happen to the human race because of our sin. And God simply comes to the serpent, Adam, and Eve, and he says, these are the consequences now of what sin. You thought it was just, I'm going to break a rule, there'd be no big deal. Maybe I get smarter, maybe I get more like God. You don't even understand what you've done. What you've done is introduce sin into the world in a way that it's going to affect your marriage, your relationships, planet Earth, the animal kingdom, your, your vocation, your authority, your dominion. You just gave away your authority to Satan just like... There's a list, a train wreck of things, and some of them are relational, especially relational. Sin wreaks havoc on everything, especially relationships. Now, because of sin, we are at enmity with God, and we have to be reconciled back or bought back, redeemed is a word you'd be familiar with. We have to be redeemed or reconciled Back into a relationship with God the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now because of sin, there's enmity between the animal kingdom and the human kingdom. It was a little more Dr. Doolittle back in the day. I don't know how if Adam could communicate with them clearly. I'm not sure how all that worked. But it was a very different environment. It, it, was, it was Eden and the, the, the lion and the lamb and everybody's just there together and there's no harm and, and, and everything's working the way God designed it. But now because of sin, there's enmity. Now because of sin, that 24-hour food buffet went away. Free, plenteous. God says now you have to, listen, and you get this. The earth is cursed in the sense that now it takes human labor to bring food to market and from the market to your table. And most of us work all week long so we can bring food to the table, right? And gas to the car so you can get to work to bring food to the table, to pay the mortgage. So it's a cycle. This is what we understand. This is what our lives have become. Now because of sin, our relationships are broken. To the woman, he said... Genesis 3:16 I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you 
The point is simply this. Now there's conflict in the marriage that was not there yesterday. Contrary. Headbutting. Conflict. Now there's conflict in a relationship that was not designed to have conflict. It was designed on a whole other model of equality and mutual respect and, and working together in companionship and openness. And now suddenly sin has introduced this contrarian, arguing against each other type philosophy from what the Amer- original marriage was designed. That, that sin also affected the family. If I challenged you, and we don't have time, but just keep reading down the page, you'll see how sin affected the first family. And the first big brother, in just a few verses, kills the first baby brother. Murder in the first home. You say, how in the world did this go wrong so quickly? Sin. And when they sinned, Adam and Eve had no idea the depths of the consequences, what it would do to their home, what it would do to their marriage, what it would do to parent-child relationships, to brotherly love relationships between their two boys, what it would do in their, just they had no idea. Satan tricked them so, so wonderfully. They had no clue the havoc they were about to wreak up on planet Earth. Adam and Eve were created as equals. But now because of sin, the physically stronger will dominate the physically weaker. He shall rule over you. Here's what's coming. The men are going to subjugate the women now. You say, why? Because they can and you can't stop them. That's why. And I'm not saying they're not some strong women, but men have different bone mass, different muscle mass. They're made for lifting. They're made for different things. And it won't even be a contest. The stronger are going to dominate the weaker. And if you think I'm a little off base, let me just, I'm a history student. And what human history looks like for the last 6,000 years is the stronger army dominates the weaker army. And the stronger nations impose their will upon the weaker nations. And the stronger crush the weaker. And the empires of might rise up and get strong and exert their will upon world history because they can and they choose to. And that's the whole human story of warfare and aggression that brings us to our present hour. What follows in the Bible and in human history are six millennia of broken marriages that do not look like the first marriage as God designed it. Let me be very clear. Ruling over her is part of the curse of sin. Now you've sinned. Here's part of the curse. And he shall rule over you. Ruling over her It's part of the curse, not part of the kingdom of God. (laughs) It's part of the curse of sin ruling over her. Do you know what God wants us to do in the kingdom of God? Reverse the curse. You're supposed to be about reversing the curse, not perpetuating the curse. Does that make any sense? What I'm saying this morning is I know God's speaking to your heart. Because in your own marriage, you have conflict. We all do. It's a very level playing field this morning. There, you're saying, well, somebody has the perfect marriage. There's no such thing as the perfect marriage in this room. Forget it. There's broken marriages that need to be better. And there's good marriages that need to be, get gooder. Okay? 
And there's saved marriages that need to be more sanctified, okay? We're all on a path here trying to get back to what God really wanted for us. But maybe even in your home right now, you're dealing with some conflict. Could be very small strife, could be, could be not much. Or it could be anger. And it could come out as abuse and shouting and, and hitting and intimidation. We all deal with a little bit different thing in our, in our marriages. And, and if you want to know, okay, what do we do from here? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to deal with what starts this problem. We have to deal with sin. This is what starts the conflict, sin. Sin has caused this, our sin, my sin, your sin. Our sin caused what we've got. And we have to own that. And we have to bow before a holy God and we have to say, God, I confess that. I agree with you. I am a sinner. And I agree that much of the marriage problems, I, much of, listen to me deflect, all of the marriage problems I deal with are my sin. Does that make sense? I almost said it was, what else would it be? It's part of your sin? No, it's my sin. My marriage issues, my relational issues have to do with the brokenness of humanity and my own sin. My sin did this. And I think if we could all get to that confession this morning, we'd have a great place to leave here today and be able to say, okay, I'm going to own my sin and I'm going to ask God to forgive me of my sin. I may need to talk to my spouse about I've asked God to forgive me of some hurtful things that I've introduced in the marriage because of my sin. Because what I really want is that restored relationship with God, that restored marriage as God designed it you can get to that and you can get there pretty quickly but you've got to start over with your mate you're going to have to come to her and say okay some things might be broken listen we may have a wonderful but there may be a few things because of my sin that i impose in the marriage that causes some friction i'm going to own that i'm going to own that and i want you to know that i've asked god to forgive me of that and i'm going to try to reset be renewed be transformed by the renewing of your mind I'm going to try to let God renew my thinking and renew my approach into dealing with you and relating to you in the marriage because in the kingdom of God, we're all about reversing the curse, not perpetuating it. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Now let's, let's have a moment of commitment before we go. I know I used a little more of my time than I needed to. Let me just say to you this morning in this time of response that there's nothing for God to discover about you that he doesn't already know. Now your spouse may not know everything, your kids may not know everything, your boss might not, but there's nothing for God to discover. He knows you fully and completely. And here's the amazing thing, he loves you <laughs> knowing everything there is to know about you. And I want you to know this morning the most transformational power on planet earth is not your love for God. The most transformational power on planet earth is God's love for you. Allow God to reverse the curse in your own life. Allow God to work. Allow God to spill that over what's happening in your heart, into your marriage, into your kids, into your vocation. But it's got to start in our hearts. Let God transform you in your heart and then let it spill over. Don't say, God, don't fix my wife or, or fix my husband or fix my kids. God, fix me. God, I am broken because of my sin. I own that. I confess that. God, transform me to be like you, to be what you intended. 
What we know is that Jesus came to be the sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And there is much more than just that he came to be our sacrifice. He came to restore our relationship to God. He came to give us citizenship in his kingdom. And to make us, every one of us, men and women, kings and priests unto our God. That he came to give you a position, standing, adoption. He came, ladies and gentlemen, to restore what we lost in the fall in the Garden of Eden. And that includes our marriage, our relationships, and our views of society. I'm going to ask every Christian husband and wife to start with yourself this morning and say, God, it's my sin that causes conflict in my life. God, help me right now to deal with my sin before a holy God. Why don't you just have a little time of owning that right now. There at your seat, here at an altar, it matters not. Just do business with God right now as he's leading your heart. I think husbands and wives right now are just praying and seeking God's will and saying, God, would you just, we want to restore what they had in Eden into our home. We have a lot of young marrieds, newly marrieds here. Listen, start out right. Start out right trying to live out that first marriage. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, He came to redeem you from the curse of sin to give you eternal life as his child that's done by putting your faith in him and you can articulate your faith with a simple prayer express it to God if you've never done that then right now why don't you pray with me receive Christ as your savior be a part of his kingdom today pray like this dear God I confess to you that I'm a sinner God I need a savior I know you're the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins. And right now, I confess what you already know. I am a sinner. And I'm asking you right now, God, forgive me of all of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me as I articulate to you that I'm putting my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my life and be the Lord, be the King of my life. I am yours. And I want to live out the rest of my life in the kingdom of God, living by kingdom principles and being a kingdom man, being a kingdom woman. God, thank you for loving me. And thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand together. If you prayed that prayer, would you let someone know today that you prayed that prayer? Many of you have been... Uh, starting point you're right on the verge of membership if you're ready to do that this morning some of our staff are right here would you just come and just say I'm ready they know what to do and how to help you and uh, listen just as you as you get your mind ready for going home now we're not going to live like the rest of the world I'm going to go at, go be them listen we're, we're going to reverse the curse we're going to be what God's always wanted us to be because our sins have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and we've been filled with the Holy Spirit's power, we are able to go and live out the life He wants us to live. That's what we're going to do this week.